The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Thanksgiving in America, Thanksgiving in lockdown. On Thanksgiving Eve, I sat in for Tucker and laid it all out. This grim season, no more than 10 people in your home, no more than eight, no more than six for just two hours and from no more than two households. Or in Vermont, just your household. So no visiting grandpa, no visiting auntie because they're going to quiz the kids in school about it next week and the kids will be squealing on you. So America's rulers have wrecked the most American of holidays. In a sense, the COVID lockdown and the Pilgrim Thanksgiving stand as the bookends of American history. Had there been a Doc Fauci in England in 1620, he would have advised against the Mayflower setting sail. And had there been a Governor Newsom or a Governor Cuomo or a Governor Whitmer to listen to him in 1620, they would have prevented the Mayflower from setting sail. Sorry, it's too risky, they would have cried. And they would have been right. Uh, There were 102 passengers. Only one died on the voyage, which is amazing, as they must surely have reflected on 400 years ago at Plymouth Rock. It was too amazing to last, of course. Winter came fast, and by the end of March, half the passengers were dead. But the risk was worth it for the chance to live as free men, with freedom of religion, freedom of association, freedom of movement, freedom of speech, all the things that the virus and the lockdown and big tech and big government have seriously clobbered this last year. As I've said on TV and radio, a risk-averse society is a dying society, a society in terminal decline. I referred to Thanksgiving as the most American of holidays. We have a Thanksgiving in Canada on America's Columbus Day, if you'll forgive the expression. And it's uh, a more modest affair, particularly if you've spent most of your recent northern Thanksgivings, as I have in recent decades, in Quebec, where the Francophones are (laughs) largely indifferent, I would say, to giving thanks for all the blessings of Canada. I shall never forget my first Thanksgiving in America. I was a bachelor, all on my own some. And I'd just bought a pad in New Hampshire, and in a small town, everyone knows that someone bought the old such-and-such place. And then they find out that the someone is a single guy. And I was stunned when uh, three or four people I'd exchanged a few pro-forma pleasantries with at the general store Uh, invited me for Thanksgiving dinner because they didn't like the idea of a chap with no family being all alone on the big day. I was overwhelmed by the generosity of that invitation. A few years later, when I had a bit of a profile in America and some fellows over here used to read my columns on the internet in the London or Canadian papers... I was uh, flattered to be invited by a serious A-list movie star to spend Thanksgiving with him and his family. That's quite something. It really is. But it didn't touch me in the way of that first Thanksgiving sitting in a 
big, rambling kitchen in an old, weathered farmhouse with neighbours whose families had been there for two centuries, but made some guy who'd been there for 20 minutes feel he was part of the family. I'll never forget that, even if the bloody COVID kills off Thanksgiving for good. We don't have a formal Thanksgiving Song of the Week on this show because there are no Thanksgiving standards other than Jingle Bells, which was written for Thanksgiving, as you'll know if you've read my book, A Song for the Season. But it's not about being thankful per se. Irving Berlin had a crack at that for Holiday Inn, as we'll hear later, courtesy of Bing Crosby. But unlike Easter Parade and White Christmas, Berlin didn't close the deal on the Thanksgiving holiday as he did on the others. I notice an uptick in Thanksgiving songs in recent years. Maybe it's because the Christmas songbook has become a complete wasteland in the last uh, three or four decades. Uh, So this Thanksgiving song is by Mary Chapin Carpenter. And as I've had cause to complain about many contemporary songs, In recent months, I wish the tune were a little better, but there are a couple of fragments of the lyric that take me back to my first memories of small-town New Hampshire and all the things we are denied this year. Crowded parlours and baking smells and, even before any of that, parking the car and opening the door and hearing the sound of laughter drifting across the chill night air. Mary Chapin Carpenter. Grateful for each hand we hold Gathered round this table From far and near we travel home Blessed that we are able Grateful for this sheltered place with light in every window saying welcome welcome share this feast come in away from To lead a life 
The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show A visit from Santa A visit from the mob And a high-speed tragedy It's Thanksgiving 1920 A hundred years from today There's nothing new under the sun. Think again. This Thanksgiving Day is the very first Thanksgiving in America to play host to a Thanksgiving Day parade. It was presented by the famous Gimbel's department store in Philadelphia. The city's men, women and children lined Market Street to watch the marches and floats pass by, the whole spectacular culminating with Santa Claus himself stepping down from his sleigh to enter the toy department at Gimbel's. The store has been a fixture in Philly since 1894, and the Gimbel family sees the parade as a novel way to promote its Christmas shopping season. Whether it becomes an annual tradition, we shall see. The Union Club in New York is one of the wealthiest and most prestigious clubs in America, and it has been their practice at Thanksgiving for many years now to fly the British Union flag in honour of the Mayflower and the land from which the Pilgrim Fathers set sail. Unfortunately, certain parts of the British Isles are currently in turmoil. An Irish-American supporters of one side in that conflict, the Revolutionary Party Sinn Féin, packed St. Patrick's Cathedral on Fifth Avenue tonight to mourn the death by hunger strike of Terence McSweeney, the jailed Lord Mayor of Cork. They were not pleased upon leaving the cathedral to see across the street the flag of the old enemy flying high. And so 5,000 Irish-Americans set about one of the worst riots in New York's recent history. The club was besieged, stones and other projectiles began to fly, pockmarking the grey stone facade of the building like bullet marks. And one by one, the five great plate windows of the club's exterior were shattered and toppled backwards into the members' lounge. The rector of St. Patrick's, Monsignor Lavelle, tried in vain to persuade the mob to cease. Go home, he cried from the steps of the cathedral. For the love of this country, for love of Ireland, go home. But the Sinn Féiners were enraged by the club's refusal to take down the Union Jack and Midtown police were forced to call in reinforcements from every precinct in the city to try to restrain the revolutionary fervour. For their part, the elderly gentlemen inside the club displayed remarkable sang-froid as they sat reading their papers 
and enjoying a Thanksgiving snifter all but oblivious to the rocks and broken glass landing around their feet. How sad and still tonight by the old distillery and how the cobwebs carve in the old machinery. But in the mountain tops, far from the eyes of cops, oh, how the moon shines on the moonshine so merrily, oh, oh, for one. When the moon shines on the moonshine, does the moonshine notice that it's a full moon shining down on it? A November full moon is usually known as a full beaver moon. But this month it's a full turkey moon, because full moon coincides with Thanksgiving. You might think that's not so unusual, but a full moon can occur on any one of November's 30 days. And Thanksgiving can be on any day from November the 20th to November the 30th. And aligning the two is trickier than you might think. This full moon of Thanksgiving Day 1920 is not only the first full moon Thanksgiving this century, but also the last full moon Thanksgiving this century. If you miss tonight's You'll have to wait 98 years until Thanksgiving Day 2018. The 250-mile Thanksgiving Day Speedway in Beverly Hills is the final event in the 1920 U.S. auto racing season. Today, the Frontenac racer, driven by the winner of the Indianapolis 500-mile international sweepstakes, Francis Gaston Chevrolet, was struck by Eddie O'Donnell's Duesenberg as he lost control on a bend in the 162nd of 200 laps. Monsieur Chevrolet died immediately. As you know, the race drivers are accompanied by their mechanics. Uh, Chevrolet's mechanic, John Bresnahan, was thrown clear of the car and suffered only minor injuries, but Eddie O'Donnell's mechanic, Lyle Jolls, died at the scene. Mr O'Donnell has been taken to hospital but is not expected to live. At the end of the race, officials of the American Automobile Association calculated that Gaston Chevrolet had accumulated more points during the season than any other driver and proclaimed him posthumously the Speed King of 1920. Thanksgiving is about home and family, and the short distance between the two has proved fatal 
for John Stewart of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Justice Stewart was returning to his home in Chambersburg from Thanksgiving dinner at his daughter Helen's house, just across the street from his own residence. The judge was crossing the road and stepped in front of a trolley car when it was only a few feet away. The motorman immediately applied the emergency brakes, but too late to avoid hitting Justice Stewart and sending him flying several feet. He was killed instantly. And that's the way it was, Thanksgiving 1920. A hundred years from today A hundred years from today Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. This Thanksgiving poem is known by one and all, at least with respect to its opening lines, but few Americans now recognise the name of the author, Lydia Maria Child. She became a writer because one day she chanced to pick up the North American Review and read an essay in it about how New England history offered rich pickings for any would-be novelist. She had never had any desire to become a writer, but she did live in New England. So immediately upon finishing her reading of the article, she sat down and wrote the first chapter of her first novel. For much of the 19th century, her fiction and her non-fiction were big sellers with the American public. She was an abolitionist and an opponent of American expansionism. She championed the rights of American Indians and of women, and these beliefs drove her journalism and percolated more obliquely through her novels. Lydia Maria Child lived all her life in Massachusetts. She was born in Medford. Uh, which is now a Boston suburb, but was rather more rustic in 1802. Upon marriage, she moved to the city itself until eventually she retired to Wayland, which is more or less due west of the metropolis. She was a widely read commentator on all the serious issues of her time. For example, she and her husband edited a paper called The Anti-Slavery Standard, And it doesn't get more serious than that, not in mid-19th century America. And yet, and yet, this is what her fellow Americans remember her for. In 1844, written at the time she was editing the anti-slavery standard, she wrote a reminiscence of the Thanksgivings of her childhood a third of a century earlier and how it caught the fancy of her readers. Posterity has amended it over the last 175 years. You generally hear Mrs. Child's very singular would in the first line pluralise these days, in part because there was far more cleared land for sheep farming back then, and that cleared land was punctuated occasionally by a precisely defined particular wood, uh, as opposed to the New England landscape today when the farms have died and the trees have reclaimed the land in one general blur of plural woods marching north to the Canadian border. 
and you're as likely to hear grandfather's house referred to as grandmother's house, presumably a silvery-haired widow woman. But then the author herself was wont to modify her versified memories as time went by, offering longer versions and shorter versions as the need arose. Uh, I've come up with something in between that I hope uh, turns out just right, really just my favourites of all her verses. First published in 1844 in Flowers for Children, Volume 2, by Lydia Maria Child, the New England Boys' Song about Thanksgiving Day. Over the river and through the wood to grandfather's house we go. The horse knows the way to carry the sleigh through the white and drifted snow. Over the river and through the wood to grandfather's house away. We would not stop for doll or top, for tis Thanksgiving day. Over the river and through the wood, oh how the wind does blow. It stings the toes and bites the nose as over the ground we go. Over the river and through the wood to have a first-rate play. Hear the bells ring, ting-a-ling-ding, hurrah for Thanksgiving Day. Over the river and through the wood to see little John and Anne. We will kiss them all and play snowball and stay as long as we can. Over the river and through the wood, trot fast, my dapple grey. Spring over the ground like a hunting hound for tis Thanksgiving Day. Over the river and through the wood and straight through the barnyard gate. We seem to go extremely slow, it is so hard to wait. Over the river and through the wood, now grandmother's cap I spy. Hurrah for the fun, is the pudding done? Hurrah for the pumpkin pie. A poem from me to you this Thanksgiving Day by Lydia Maria Child. If you're wondering where Grandfather's House actually was, well, you can visit it for yourself. It's in Medford, Massachusetts, which is also where that great Thanksgiving song, Jingle Bells, was written, about the exciting sleigh races in that town. Lydia's grandparents' home is what's now known as the Paul Curtis House on South Street, and is a handsome Greek revival mansion, as befits Mr Curtis, who was a wealthy shipbuilder. But in Lydia's childhood, it was a much more basic New England farmhouse, with barnyard gate and all the rest. The river she crossed is the Mystic River, and the wood she went through is long gone, replaced by the endless sprawl of a growing state. But the house itself now owned by Tufts University, still stands, as does an ancient recollection of a New England childhood at the dawn of the 19th century. Mark Stein's Last Call For many Americans, there will be empty seats around the table this Thanksgiving because of the ravages of the Chinese coronavirus. For other Americans, there will be empty seats around the table by edict of your state's governor. So in the absence of a big family Thanksgiving in reality, let us create one in historical memory. Times have changed, and we've often rewound the clock. 
the Puritans got a shock when they landed on Plymouth Rock. Indeed, let's rewind the clock to Plymouth Rock. As mentioned earlier, the death toll among the Mayflower passengers who made it to the New World was terrible in that first year. But enough of them survived and prospered, and this is their family Thanksgiving. In November 1621, and over the river and through the wood and across a continent, down through the decades. We're going to need a lot of turkeys and a lot of pumpkin pie. Here are John Alden, the cruise cooper aboard the Mayflower, who elected to stay in Plymouth Colony when the ship returned to England, and his young bride Priscilla Mullins, who lost her entire family, father, stepmother, brother, during that first brutal winter in America. John and Priscilla's daughter, Elizabeth, said to be the first white woman born in New England, is also here, and so are her children, and grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren, including the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who made his forebears John and Priscilla Alden famous in his great work, The Courtship of Miles Standish. Here is Mr. and Mrs. Alden's third daughter, Ruth, and her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, including America's second president, John Adams, and America's sixth president, John Quincy Adams, and America's 30th president, Calvin Coolidge. And here is Richard Warren, who sailed alone on the Mayflower and then, having settled himself at Plymouth Colony, sent for his wife and children from England. And here they are with their children's children and their children's children's children, including America's 18th president, Ulysses S. Grant, and America's 32nd president. Sam Franklin Roosevelt looks good. Oh, and on the Loyalist side, the Dominion of Canada's sixth Prime Minister, Sir Charles Tupper. Here are John and Eleanor Billington, who sailed on the Mayflower with their two rowdy sons, John and Francis, who loosed squibs aboard and fired off a musket inside the ship while it was anchored off Cape Cod. And they have their families down through the generations with them, including America's 20th president, James Garfield. And Stephen Hopkins is here. He had been shipwrecked at Bermuda in 1609 and journeyed on to the starving colony at Jamestown, 
before it was abandoned. But he liked what he saw, and a decade later he returned to the New World with his wife Elizabeth and their children and their servants. And they are here with their children, and their children's children's children on down the years, including America's 22nd Vice President, Levi Morton, who as the U.S. Minister to France, placed in 1881 the first rivet in what would become the Statue of Liberty. And William and Mary Brewster are here, and all their family, including America's 12th president, Zachary Taylor, and America's 30th vice president and occasional composer, Charles Gates Dawes. Many a tear has to fall, but it's all in the game. And America's 41st vice president, Nelson Rockefeller, and a vice presidential candidate, Sarah Palin. Drill, baby, drill. And John Howland, a manservant to Governor Carver, is here, and his bride, Elizabeth Tilly, with their 10 children and all their children's family, including America's 41st president, George Bush. A thousand points of light. And America's 43rd president. George W. Bush. And you're working hard to put food on your family. Oh, but it's a big family with a lot of food to put on it. Let's go down the table and meet a few of the kids. Among Stephen and Elizabeth Hopkins brood are Robert Treat Payne, signer of the Declaration of Independence, and Colonel Lon Cushing, who defended the Union position on Cemetery Ridge at Gettysburg against Pickett's Charge, and General Leonard Wood, Governor-General of the Philippines and of Cuba. And Mr. Hopkins' former indentured servant, Edward Doty, is here with his clan, including Eliphalet Remington, founder of the Remington Arms Company, whose products it's best to keep away from the quick-tempered and rather argumentative Mr. Doty. With the countless bolt actions that have come and gone in America, you'd think it nearly impossible for one to stand out for more than a half century until you realize only one can be the most accurate out of the box. The legendary Model 700 from Remington. Let's move down to John and Elizabeth Howland's table for the young'uns. Here's Nathaniel Gorham, signer of the United States Constitution, and Phillips Brooks, rector of Trinity Church in Boston, who gave us one of America's loveliest carols. Do you mind if uh, I take a couple of lines? Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Oh, William Bradford, sometime governor of Plymouth Colony, is here. When the Mayflower arrived in the New World, the ship anchored and Mr. Bradford went off on one of the searching parties to find land suitable for a settlement. 
On his return to the ship, he was told that while the Mayflower was at anchor, his wife Dorothy had fallen overboard and drowned. But his second wife, Alice, is here and all their progeny, including lexicographer Noah Webster. You're much too much and just too very, very to ever be in Webster's Dictionary. And Deborah Sampson, who served in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. Wait, wait a minute, they had female combat soldiers back then? No, she disguised herself as a man and fought with the other men. And that's General McClellan across the table, commander of the Union forces in the Civil War, and George Eastman, inventor of the Kodak camera. And now Kodak presents a holiday reminder from Betty White. So when you're out for holiday fun, be sure to take along an extra roll or two of Kodakolor film so you can capture all the fun and color of your happy family day. And Mr. Eastman's cousin, Charles Dana Gibson, illustrator and inventor of the Gibson girl phenomenon. Oh, and Hugh Hefner, whose girls left a lot less to the imagination than his kinsman, Mr. Gibson's. Been accused of exploiting the female body time and time again. I think sexism and racism are two very different kinds of things. Uh, and the enduring film star Clint Eastwood. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? It's Thanksgiving, Clint. We're all lucky. And Clint's across from his cousins, the novelist Thomas Pynchon and Superman himself, Christopher Reed. How's Thanksgiving going? Not at all. I'd say it's been swell. Swell? Yeah. You know, Clark, um... There are very few people left in the world who feel comfortable saying that word. What word? Swell. And Alec Baldwin and Sally Field. You like me right now. You like me. Steady. Thanksgiving is a long day, and it's easy to wear out your welcome. Just ask Alec. And that's Sally and Alec's cousin, Julia Child. Any tips? this day for your Plymouth Plantation forefathers. If you've never roasted a turkey before, looking at this great big animal, you'd say, gosh, what am I going to do with that? Oh, and that's Chief Justice William Rehnquist down at the end. No talk of Bush versus Gore, please. Not at the Thanksgiving table. Let's mosey over to the ranks of John and Eleanor Billington's little ones. Very little in the case of Countess Lavinia Warren, just two foot six. She's here with her husband, General Tom Thumb, just three foot three. And thanks to P.T. Barnum, the two most famous dwarves on the American stage. And there's their distant cousin and fellow performer Richard Gere, trying to interest them in a little light celebrity Buddhism. Francis Cook is here with all his posterity, including the great American folk artist Grandma Moses. Isaac Allerton, 
and his family sailed on the Mayflower and his children had children and their children had grandchildren and great-grandchildren including Louis Comfort Tiffany, the great designer of the Tiffany lamp and Mr. Tiffany's great-grandchild, the investor George Gilder. Let's cross to Richard and Elizabeth Warren's kiddies table. And there's Francis Perkins Wilson, the longest-serving U.S. Secretary of Labor and the first-ever female cabinet secretary. Oh, and William and Mary Brewster's clan. It's not just all those presidents and vice presidents we mentioned earlier. Here's the rest of the family. Catherine Hepburn and her singing kinsman Bing Crosby and Bing's bandleader brother Bob Crosby. I know Doc Fauci and co say no singing at Thanksgiving anymore, but come on, Bing, Bob, we won't call the sheriff. Give us a quick burst of something for the day. I've got plenty to be thankful for. I haven't got great big yacht to sail from shore to shore. Still I've got plenty to be thankful for. Hey, don't knock those vessels sailing from shore to shore. Oh, and just across the table, here's Bing's cousin, Vermont Governor Howard Dean. How about one of your favorite numbers? You know something? Not only are we going to New Hampshire, we're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. And we're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah! Yeehaw! Great stuff for Thanksgiving. Oh, and here's Howard's cousin, the actress Ashley Judd. Get up and give us one of the old favorites, Ashley. I am a nasty woman. Uh, I'm not sure about that one, to be honest. Let's thread our way through the tables and come back to where we started, to John and Priscilla Alden and their children and grandchildren and great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, including Dick Van Dyke. primitive hand-hued furniture dick and Orson Welles. Say, how does America compare to Europe, Orson? In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. Oh, and Marilyn Monroe. again, Marilyn. There's too many presidents and vice presidents and governors and Canadian prime ministers and Greek crown princesses and poets and painters, soldiers and starlets down through the years. One grand family tree planted in the soil of a new world four centuries ago. And as I told my friend Tucker the other night, it's always tickled me 
that John and Priscilla Alden's descendants in America include not only John Adams and Calvin Coolidge and Marilyn Monroe, but also my small town in New Hampshire's North Country, my small town's volunteer fire chief, and his dad, the overseer of the poor, one of the many elected offices in small town government that do not require foreign voting machines to tally the winner. And you should hear those two sing Do It Again, by the way. One great American family, and all descended from the survivors of the Mayflower, its long voyage and that first brutal winter, the men and women who gathered to eat and drink and give thanks 399 years ago. You don't have to trace your lineage that far back and be a cousin of Bing Crosby and Howard Dean as I said at the start of the show you can be all on your ownsome and at this time of year someone will invite a poor lonely canadian boy to share their table so forget about those idiot governors and their thanksgiving swat teams pull up a chair next to noah webster grab a piece of pie and ask him for the definition of that most american of holiday words thanksgiving stay safe stay free stay thankful Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media.